creeds and criticism meet. Split Frame of Reference podcast. Started some of the key 
aspects. Yeah. Like, they recognize that authentic probably isn't a positive use of authority, but has something more cultic involved, perhaps. I don't take that route, but at least, you know, they they challenge the, the easy understanding that it just meant having authority or something like that. Yeah, and something interesting at the CBE conference, um, something I appreciated, uh, Cynthia, so they did a Bible translation team. They announced that they are going to come out with their own Bible translation. Yeah. Um, so that's going to be exciting. But uh, Cynthia Westfall talked about Authenteo, basically it being a bit misleading that they use the term authority at, people use the term authority at all in its translation. And I can talk about this now, but I remember back when I was first facilitate, helping to facilitate one of these international, international meetings. That was, Bible translation. yeah, for the Bible translation. Um, they, it, that was a huge part of the discussion. Um, cause there's a lot of basic ways to, I guess it, that have been, it's been translated. Yeah. So the negative term is oftentimes assume authority, usurp authority, domineer. domineer. Um, and Cynthia Westfall then and now, and I think everyone was kind of agreeing, um, said that it's, it's a, it, translation's always difficult because you can still give the wrong impression. The fact that you just have authority in there gives the wrong sense of the term. Um, it gives it a little bit too much legitimacy, even though you qualify it with a negative. Yeah. And she was saying, too, that oftentimes people that just don't know any better have taken this as authenteo as a specialized term for what a pastor in particular does um, versus someone who's just normally exercising authority, which is not true. Yeah. And very damaging because it's just, it's a thoroughly negative term. And I remember then and now she was saying that maybe control uh, might be a good way to go. Um, yeah, that's how I've, I've begun to take it is to control her husband or a man or something. Like as that. in being controlling. Yeah. So not in terms of, I mean, again, here we are with translation. There's, I don't think there's any easy fix here. There's no one, this is something a lot of people don't know. There's no one-to-one -one correspondence in Greek and, yeah. and in English, for example, if you have a... Or between uh, the two. Yeah, if, if you have a, a passive verb or a middle verb or something like that, but it's also, I don't know, uh, embarrassed or something like that, past tense or something like that, then you need at least two to three words to translate the one word. Sometimes, yeah. Or minimally two to three usually, because you need to have some sort of qualifier. Has been, um, has been late, you know, or something like that. It's not just late, it has been late, which implies, you know, this, that, and the other. And so English translation of Greek, especially with these highly polarizing texts, is, is, uh, is a really difficult enterprise. And I don't know, when I see Wayne Grudem and Crossway do the whole, like, oh, it's just simple, it's just simple this, it's like, well, no, it's not. And anyone who says that complementarian or egalitarian is just full of themselves. Well, it's difficult, too, because, again, whenever you're translating a language, sometimes the language you're translating into allows for certain nuances that perhaps the original didn't. Yeah. Um, that's one reason I like Philip Payne's um, I am not permitting a woman to dot dot dot. Um, it's trying to bring out that this is a present active indicative, but it's not quite grammatically 
exact, but at the same time, if you translate it as I do not permit a woman to teach or assume authority, then what you end up doing in the English that's not necessarily there in the Greek is allowing for this to be read rather than something that's occurring now. Um, you're actually allowing for it to be read as though it's this absolute principled rule. Well, it's, it's translating the present tense verb as a perfect verb. And giving, I mean, John MacArthur did this in a sermon. He literally said, it's a present uh, first person indicative. And my first thought was, I don't think he actually knows what that means, but he said that sort of stuff. And see, therefore, it's continuing on, and it continues on into our present. And it's like, well, that's not how tense works, and that's just not how language works like this, and all that. So I think translating it pains way at least tries to smack the reader and say, hey, you actually need to take this seriously, not just kind of go, oh, well, it was good for then, it's good for now. It's like, no, that's, that's not how tenses work in Greek. And some people um, actually insert a word, so I'm not currently permitting. And it's just, again, it's the... It's, it's just how translation goes. Um, sometimes there's just no I mean, if you want perfect to be, solution. If you want to be a wooden about it, just say, I'm not presently permitting because it's a present tense. I'm not presently <laughs> permitting a woman to, uh, to teach and to control her husband or a wife to teach or control her husband or something like that. Yeah, well, and then that doesn't quite get the nuance of the um, teach and assume authority or, in this case, control um, being taken as a whole, so a certain kind of teaching. Yeah. Um, and um, so I got to actually give a workshop this time, which I was excited about. And I actually went ahead and went through First Timothy 2 and gave a very fresh, I think a fresh reading. Um, I believe it's going to be made available at CBE's website. If not, I'll figure out something. But something that I've been trying to draw people's attention to, and it's part of my larger project right now um, with the Eve Christology project, is I'm actually going to um, turning everyone to Mark 10, and specifically in the section that the echo is taken from, uh, that Jesus gave his life as a ransom for all in the in First Timothy passage, and then many in the Mark 10 passage. But in that section, it's actually in the context of James and John wanting to get priority of place um, at Jesus's right and left hand. And they're trying to get the jump on the disciples to do that. Yeah. So it's, it's interesting. Um, in there, uh, Jesus, part of his correction of them is that they, he doesn't want them to be like uh, the Gentiles that Lord, the, the great ones, lord it over others and exercise authority um, over people so it's interesting because over there um, you don't have an odd unusual term that only occurs once in the new testament rarely elsewhere often teo instead you have a um, variation off of exousia and so you do have a term that means authority and then over um, but in that case a term that's not necessarily inherently negative, you have it used in a negative context, and context tells you what it means. Yeah. Um, it's negative in that, in the way, in the manner it's being done, and that's where um, the echo in First Timothy comes from, I believe, 
or at least um, it's hard to know if we can't really say that Paul, for instance, had a copy of Mark 10 around him, per se. But again, I think there's a long oral tradition, too. So it, it's hard to know exactly in what way, um, what kind of copy or original manuscript, if any, um, Paul's deal working off of. But I think conceptually, you can say that there's a lot of overlap between the First Timothy 2 and Mark 10 passage. And additionally, there's a lot more, com there, there are many common terms too, um, tied to those similarities in theme. And you can check it out on CPE's website when it comes out, or maybe we'll post it here. We'll see. Possible time, 
And he prepared uh, to have to do the presentation with or without PowerPoint. Yeah. So he <laughs> he did both. Yep. <laughs> Aww. So, yep. That was that was funny. Yeah, he's a really cool guy too. We uh, met up with him um, accidentally. I it was funny. Uh, we. We met, I guess, getting on to the airport, the shuttle from the airport to the hotel. Yeah. And I'm like, hi, Shane. <laughs> yeah. And he's only remotely spoken to me over email because I was in contact with the speakers and um, basically vetted them all, decided who's coming and stuff like that. So. Yeah. Um. <laughs> so yeah, that was awkward. Afterwards, he walked. I told him. I said, well. On the plus side, I took it outside and gave it the office space love, which if anyone has seen office space knows exactly what I'm talking about, what they do to that poor printer. But yeah, it was one of those where just timing-wise couldn't have happened at the worst possible time, and it did. And that's God's way of saying, watch out for power spikes in hotels. Yeah, well, there we go. Lesson learned, sort of. I mean, I don't know how that you could really prepare for that. No, you can't. <laughs> We've got a Twitter question. So, this is by someone named uh, Kara. It's, hey, here's a question I have. Whenever I discuss Ephesians 5.21 with complementarians, they are always quick to say, well, that doesn't mean mutual submission. It's only some people submitting to other people. But they can't or won't say which people are submitting to others. Only that submission is for sure about women and wives submitting to male and husband authority. They say the one another in this verse is not about mutuality or recipro uh, reciprocity, but there are so many one another passages in scripture that do seem to be about mutuality. Uh, I can't say this today. I can't talk today. Uh, love, humility, and unity within the body of Christians. Is the Greek the same for all the one another's found in scripture, including Ephesians 5.21? I asked this question in Biblical Christian Egalitarian Facebook page, but didn't get any many folks answering the one another question. In short, yes. <laughs> um, there's Wayne Grudem is among like five complementarians who actually will make this case. I was re If you want a really good complementarian refutation of this, Clinton Arnold is the... Uh, I want to say Dean at Talbot School of Theology, by no means an egalitarian institution, and in his commentary on Ephesians, he gives like four or five or so reasons why Wayne Grudem is wrong as a complementarian. So this is an argument most uh, complementarians don't actually accept simply because the evidence doesn't support it. Wayne Grudem likes to tout, I think it's a verse in Revelation where people are killing each other and go, see, uh, this doesn't mean mutual submission or anything like that. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and the basic response is one, uh, actually, yeah, they are trying to kill each other. Kill one another. Yeah, yeah, it's all alone, correct? Yeah. As far as if if that is if they're all if we're talking about the one another's and they've been accurately accurately translated from the Greek all alone, uh, then which itself all alone does not mean quote mutual submission. It means um, together, like one another. That's kind of yeah. the idea. Yeah. Um, and in Ephesians five twenty one and twenty two, well, with twenty two, um, submission 
is a verb that's attached. Yep. And so, basically, even the idea of they're trying to kill one another or some people are trying to kill other people, it's like, well, no, even in that context, both both groups are trying to kill, quote, one another, <laughs> indicating a negative type of reciprocity or you might say a, uh, a mutual dominance. Mutual or, destruction. Yeah, mutual destruction. So, it's one of those, if Wayne Grudem were being, I would argue, academically honest, he wouldn't be making this argument. He has other outs. He could just simply say, my work on Cafelet is... Uh, sufficient to establish that mutual submission is also compatible with male headship, which is itself a bad argument, but at least it's arguing from the actual text that he thinks teaches it, not making up new meanings of words that no one disputed until, well, basically him. Yep. So the other thing um, is you can try and uh, there's a story Nick has with Love Seacrest doing this with a student. Basically, have them read, if they can, verse 22 in the Greek and ask them, and again, we're assuming that they know um, Greek. If they don't, then just point, then just point out this. There's no verb submit in verse 22. It's not there. Why is it in there in the English Bibles? Well, because it's inferred from verse 21. So yes, it goes there. It's implied. Um, it's implied, but it's based off of verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives to your husbands. And it's, it's not actually hard to show them this, even if they don't know Greek. You can yeah. just open up your Greek New Testament to verse 21. And hupotasso, you know, the, you just point to it and say, that's a submit verb, right? And if they say yes, then you go, okay, show me that verb in verse 22. They won't be able to do it. If you don't have access, and this might actually be easier, go to stepbible.org. And in the bar, um, it's going to have automatically ESV there, but don't worry about it. Just leave it as is. Um, type in SBL, uh, Greek New Testament. It's, type in SBL in the Greek New Testament option will come up. And then also type in first, uh, Ephesians 5. And then scroll over to verse um, 21 and 22. Um, highlight the submit um, word in there. And they'll be able to see right in front of them that that same word that means submit, it'll be right there for them. It'll be translated and they can look on the right hand side and see that that is indeed the word. Um, It's not there in verse 22. And so what that means is that no egalitarians are not denying that wives submit to their husbands. We're denying that it's this idea of gender hierarchy where only wives are submitting to their husbands. And that's not premised on a larger biblical idea of mutual submission. So, there you have it. (laughs) Yep. Good question, by the way. And that is saying something because there were a lot of really good ones. Well, Shane Claymore basically preached a good old Baptist sermon, so that was pretty awesome. So, yeah. uh, which workshop was this, and why was it uh, so meaningful to you? Yeah, so um, 
I think, so this person was Annette Oltman, and she helps with the, Men, or I think she helped found the MEND project, which is, provides resources for women um, and men that suffer abuse. What makes this place um, kind of unique is that she has a concept that uh, she's coined double abuse. Double abuse, okay. She's called it specifically that way because um, her own experience, and I guess a lot of us who've had experiences with abuse um, end up, you know, wanting to turn it around into something constructive. And she needed to find words for what she was experiencing. She had um, instances of domestic violence, and when she confided into her church group, they basically turned viciously on her, all of them. And it, I guess this term helps her to put words into it. And so um, what I like about, what I liked about the MEND project, the MEND project, and I lined them up for CBE um, because we needed some resources on abuse for this conference, um, especially because of everything that's been going on in the news. And really it's not anything new. CBE has long taken an interest and a, a deep like concern and heart had a deep heart for um, women that and men that have been abused yeah. and that's actually one of their top questions and always has been um, a lot of some of the former founders of CBE have put out books on this matter but anyway I, I picked the men project because they had some like really superior resources um, out there and so if you go to their website um, just type in the men project into Google and it'll come up you'll see in their their forms they have they break it down very well in terms of what double abuse is um, the four pillars of abuse period and then also they find they find a good way to name in a just easy to look at chart a lot of the very subtle weird dynamics of abuse that people don't usually focus in on um, so a lot of people really highlight the physical violence that occurs right. um, but most people that have been ab abused and not all abuse is physical but most people that have been abused even if it's been physical that's not the worst part of their experience and that's very heartbreaking because a lot of what happens is how the rest of us respond when they reach out for help um, I remember in the conference or in the workshop, she was saying that the Center of Disease Control puts an emphasis on what's called emotional abuse because of the excessive physical damage it does. And that doesn't surprise me one bit um, as someone who, I guess, suffered from actually physical abuse as well um, in, my, in my past. Um, it, it's always... Not from me. <laughs> not from Nick. Um, it, yeah, it, it's... And I've had um, some, I've had another instance um, that's more recent than that one, but yeah, it, I would say the dynamic that, it, I, I'd say it's the emotional abuse that's been the most damaging. And that's because, and number one, okay, I want to say this, there is a physical element to it. Your health just tanks and people don't really realize that it, it's not just about, I feel hurt. And that's something that she really I think brought out in the workshop she said she defined a difference between hurt versus harm like hurt makes us grow you know someone hurts our feelings sometimes or we get hurt some other way you know we're able to recover and come out stronger harm damages us it's trauma yeah. you know and that's something they don't really people don't really understand very well that this is actually something that 
um, damages you and it's not so easily um, recovered from and I mean it's I think God can take all of our awful evil situations and um, bring something beautiful out of it but the reality is like things really mess people up and they have horrific consequences um, that we don't always um, see and we don't always see justice or healing in this lifetime and I think that's also reality that we all have to just contend with but yes anyway uh, abuse would be in the injury category not in the especially emotional abuse it's not just someone hurt my feelings um, here's some interesting things that she brought out in terms of some aspects of abuse that are common in abusive situations but they are the kinds of things that are more covert that really damage people and in part because um, they're not easily named and the abusive people know this this is how they manipulate and and hurt and hurt people um, a big thing is denial um, a fundamental refusal to accept responsibility by living a false reality um, I remember a long, you know, this is, again, like years and years and years and years and years ago. Um, that was one of the things that really messed me up. Um, I was very traumatized and tried to confront this person several times. And they just denied it, you know. And they said that I was the person just trying to victimize myself. And my younger self, it, yeah, really put me into a spiral. Um, which, thankfully, I've overcome. But that's a big tactic. Um... There's magical thinking involved, believing that the perpetrator's problems will go away with an apology when it will take much more than that. That's very classic for the people around you. Pathologizing, making the victim the problem by inflating their expression of the problem, which is actually caused by the perpetrator in the first place. Yeah. Yep. You know, it's, you know, blame the victim is the, one of the catchphrases for that. Um... Entitlement, unrealistic demands that one is deserving of preferential treatment or double standards. I find that to be very common with abusive people. Um, just attributing everything that they do that's actually demeaning and meant to actually damage an individual. I don't mean just hurt someone's feelings slightly. I mean actually cause horrendous damage. They'll try to label it as a joke or sarcasm. Gaslighting, that's altering or denying a shared reality but victims feel they are wrong in their perceptions and wrong in their experience. So they actually try to make you feel like you um, believe or feel something that you don't. It's really creepy stuff. I've been in it. It's horrifically hard to fight against even if you know what they're doing because they're making you live a reality that's not yours. And it's a very difficult thing to try to fight back with on a, just a internal level, especially if it's constant. I'll go, I'll, I'll, there's a long list, but I'll skip a bunch. I'm um, creating a cloud of confusion, telling false and grandiose stories to third parties in order to undermine objectivity and manipulate the end result or outcome. Yeah, I mean, that's what they do. That They try to get other people on their side by making stuff up or um, blowing stuff out of proportion. Lying, yeah, they like to lie. Grandiosity, inflating one's value to diminish the others, yes. Excuse making, rationalization, that's, I think, this doesn't surprise anyone. Um, blaming and reverse blaming. In blaming, issues are always one-sided or reversed with the problem being laid at the victim's feet. So, again, making the victim the person that has to carry everything. Um, scapegoating, 
I'm gonna skip that though. Um, here's a cute one for everyone else. One of the most toxic forms of abuse is withholding. It's a refusal to communicate, listen, or rejoice in one's fortune. So what oftentimes happens, and this is oftentimes by design by an abusive person, is everyone around them will, and even the abusive person themselves, will withhold um, basic human dignity, value, um, kindness, um, cordiality from the person. Um, so they'll treat them like with extreme boundaries and they'll treat the person like they're the ones with the problem. And so most, I mean, it's healthy, for instance, to put down boundaries, especially with, you know, another person. Yeah. But imagine you walked, you know, to your church, you know, or some sort of social club, uh, maybe it's work, maybe it's a Bible study, maybe it's, maybe it's in your own home. And then all of a sudden, everyone puts you at arm's length and like, no, I'm sorry, you know, it, it's crossing the line to have lunch with you. It's crossing the line, you know, to work with you on X, Y, or Z, or, you know, acknowledge your presence in this. And what they're doing is, and again, you've not done anything. Perhaps you um, tried to raise awareness or get people to help you when you're being abused, or it could be any number of things, but they basically, it's more like trying to treat you as the problem. And it's another form of abuse. So, Anyway, um, those were some of the things that I found helpful. Um, and so, again, double abuse is everyone else's response, and it can also be very abusive as well. Um, and so they end up mirroring the original abusive person's disposition towards the other person, or they um, help to isolate the victim further. Um, isolation causes damage on individuals as well. Do you know of any instances, Nick, where this has happened? Can you think of anything? Um, outside of what you've told me, there's some stuff I can't really talk about as sure. a pastor. But yeah. I've, I've, seen, I've heard enough stories and seen enough of it. Yeah, I've actually, interestingly, so a lot of times it's done, you know, to someone that's, um, and it's always someone that they think they can prey on. Um, it's really what happens. Um, and then again, everyone else follows suit, but I've also met, encountered several pastors, um, even just like a, a year ago, um, I talked to someone, um, it's crazy, um, a lot of what some of these pastors have described to me sounded like work mobbing situations, um, and you can look up work mobbing and the bully, uh, look up actually the Bully Institute too, um, but a lot of what they describe seems to be very similar where um, one, one individual was talking about how um, this, this small group of people wanted was, were coming after someone and so they had targeted someone um, that they I guess found to be a political um, liability and wanted to eliminate them and he stood up for them. He was, a, he was not a senior pastor, he was an associate pastor, and they all, they all came after him, and they went after his character, um, they tried to get him fired, um, it was pretty traumatic for him, and when I had found him, it had been like at least three years later, and he was still very clearly traumatized by it, because um, again, they didn't just like, they didn't just fight back against his ideas or, you know, try to come up with reasonable explanations. They went after him in every possible way to, like, rip him apart. And, um, yeah, so there's, a, I don't know, I, I know a lot of pastors with these stories as well as happening to them. Um, 
Do you have anything else you want to say, Nick? No, I, I, it sounds like it was a really good workshop, and it sounds like CB just knocked this one out of the park this year. Yeah. We are driving into Houston right now. Uh, we drove from Dallas, now we're driving into Houston. Should be there for our flight out to California tomorrow. So, woo, Texas. Yeah, our trip is coming to an end soon. Yep. And I get to preach on Sunday on PB and Junia, so that'll be fun. Yeah. It means I should probably start working on my sermon, so. He's also preached on jail. Yep, preached on Deborah and jail. Preached on, yep. Good yeah, stuff. preached on a bunch of different people. Oh, you know, actually, this might be helpful. Um, this is another handout on this website. Really look at their website. It's amazing. And these little handouts. Um, the four pillars of abuse. So these are um, present in all forms of the original abuse. Um, faulty belief system. Moralistic judgments based on limited knowledge. Family system or social bias causing oppression of others. Um, so that's where, by the way, patriarchy fits in. Um, it not just patriarchy, there's a number of things, but usually an ab abusive person has this moralistic judgment system where they're in the right, you know, and there's this whole worldview that's bolstering their, um, their thinking that they can abuse other, other people or abuse particular people. Um, racism functions that way too. Um, image management is number two. It's the protection of one's own image to uphold social status and norms or undermining at the expense of others. Yeah, <laughs> they're basically worshiping a false self and everyone must be sacrificed to it, anyone and everyone. And then three is entitlement, expectation of preferential treatment, double standards or rewards regardless of merit or other people's needs or well-being. And yeah, I mean, that's pretty standard. They think that they should be treated in a preferential way from everyone else. And that's all of these things too um, are go with uh, systemic abuse, obviously, um, and double abuse. So we can treat, uh, someone was just talking to me about some situations of racism and okay, here we go. Um, some situations of racism, her, one of her daughter, um, faced a huge rash of it because, um, she has dark skin and she had put up, she had done a project for the school. Um, every student picks something and she picked gentrification. And so she put up her poster for gentrification and a woman, a person's mother, tore it down, ripped it to pieces. She thought it was okay to take a student's school project and rip it up. Well, why? Well, you know, I mean, who cares if you agree with it or not? Um, well, and here's the thing. The school decided not to do anything about it. Um, so anyway, there's entitlement there. Um, there's a faulty belief system there. And there's image management. Um, that The existence of that poster um, was seen as an ego threat to that woman. And so she had to get rid of it. And the fact that they decided it, the school decided to let um, something be ripped apart for, a, a, you know, a young student... Um, it, the fact that they did nothing says that they took a stand. You know, in the name of neutrality, they took a stand. They said, yes, it's okay for someone who um, also expressed racist ideas to rip your stuff apart. And we will let it happen. So, anyway. 
Um, last thing for double abuse was cultural, prejudicial, or hierarchical preferential treatment. When one expects or others provide preferential treatment to the culpable because of their social viewpoints, status, proximity to one's social circle, and or leadership or power within a group or institutional setting. So, yep, I thought I'd share those to you. Um, I'm kind of nerding out a bit because, I don't know, I just thought it was so clearly stated. So, hope it helps, and I hope you'll check them out. I took him to the vet, 
and he had to be sedated because he was a monster cat. Um, he, by the way, this cat was big. He was a big kitty. Um, now he's about 17 pounds. I would say he's about 15 pounds then because um, he still wasn't quite grown into his paws. But he had, um, uh, let's just say most house cats are 10 pounds, average house cat. This is a big cat. People asked if I rescued a little kitty. No, I rescued a big cat. Um, very muscular, um, but also I, I very underfed too. So actually maybe he was 14 pounds then. But anyway, so they sedated, they finally sedated him and were able to give him treatment and um, get him neutered. And they asked if I wanted to get his ear clipped. I said no, because I was gonna keep this kitty. And they just kind of looked at me like, it's your funeral. Um, but I took him home and um, we took him, yeah, basically we had him for a while. He was a very snarly, angry kitty, but. Yeah, he wasn't thrilled. Did not like being stuck in our bathroom for the path for the next like month. Yeah, for at first he wouldn't let us like get into shower. We had to like go downstairs to like even use the restroom. Yeah. Um, but it, it's interesting. Even though he was all snarly and ferocious kitty, um, he would actually yowl at night because he wanted us to come in and keep him company. And so he wanted us to stay at the very back of the bathroom and just talk to him. He really liked that, and then he would just kind of fall asleep. So it was actually kind of cute. <laughs> yeah. I think my favorite memory of him is, I think probably about a month and a half. So about after he'd been in there for a while and he could lick himself and clean himself and all that fun stuff, he began to realize that we were no threat to him. And so he'd hang out and kind of do stuff, but would hide under the couch. Yeah. Oh yeah. We, yeah, we let him into yeah. the, yeah. After he was like somewhat clean. Okay. So give you an idea. Um, this kitty, um, we realized he was a lot more orange and like had white in his fur once like he went to drink some water and that like little portion of his nose and his cheeks um, became visible. So you see this like very dirty brown color and then all of a sudden like this brilliant orange and white like shining through the yep. little spot. Um, but yeah, so we let him out and he... I don't know. He came around. We have a bunch of videos on Instagram. <laughs> yeah. Oh, just the the look on his face when he realized that he could get pets whenever he wanted. Yeah, that was something. Laying down, flexing his paws, purring. Like, it was... Once we did that, I was like, alright, he's home. Yeah, it took a while. Like, we got little hints. Like, um, I remember we were gone for a while, and then we came back and saw a pile of cat hair on the corner of the bed. We're my spot was, was like oh he missed us and yeah just little things like I would play with him while he was under the couch and kind of try to coax him out a little bit just get used to like having friendly hands around and then you know after a while we just we're, we were very careful and didn't like push him to do anything he didn't want to do and yeah that moment when he realized he could get pets like he just all of a sudden like just changed like now he's actually the most cuddly cat in the world. And clean. <laughs> yes, and clean. I've given him three different baths, and he's really good, actually. Um, we think he's part Maine Coon because of his maybe less usual size, even though he's to scale and not overweight. Um, and he has a fascination with water. Um, his eyes are a little 
more expressive because I think they're a little larger, like a Maine Coon. And he's very soft under his chest and belly. Yeah, he has layers of fur, yeah. Very layered. And so, yeah. But yeah, he looks like a or like just a regular orange tabby, but except with larger features and I'd say a little bit of an unusual coat, mm -hmm. um, even though it's short. Um, yeah, but yeah, he's he's really funny. He's very derpy. He likes to be in weird position, sit in weird positions. Um, yeah, you'll just have to look on Facebook or on yeah Facebook or Instagram. So a question that we often get is, uh, should we stay, you know, if you're a pastor or a lay person or what have you, at your church that is either complementarian or is moving in that direction based on extenuating circumstances, we'll say. And we've had a, we've had this question come up before, but I mean, it, I think it's coming up even more now as people become more aware of what scripture actually teaches. And especially, I think for a long time, people just didn't know what the egalitarian scriptural position was. Um, I, I believe, like, our opponents actually had a lot more, um, I would say, media in terms of uh, they had the audience and were able to misrepresent egalitarian um, ideas very easily. Um, most people were not going to go out and participate in a stack of egalitarian books and within their church context and recommendations. Uh, Wayne Grudem, John Piper, uh, MacArthur, those kinds of books were readily available. And so I think a lot of people didn't have to sort through this question as much. And I think a lot of people weren't necessarily even having these scriptural conversations in detail, but now they are. And also with again the me too church two movement um again this is a, this is not a new problem it's just that all of a sudden there's more awareness like people have been coming forward about abuse for a while and it takes a lot to come forward because like even like annette Oldman's workshop um double abuse is a reality and that's why a lot of people instinctively don't come forward they know that um, they'll probably get abused and isolated and degraded more by the community they do but nonetheless people have come forward and you know now it's finally getting press and I think the connection between um, abuse and a worldview that gives power that consolidates power with um, one group or one person is starting to I guess people are starting to see the connection more overtly because before it was more easily denied and this isn't to say that um, egalitarian churches don't have um, similar problems sometimes. Uh, that is true. In mass, they don't have they don't have problems with abuse as much as churches that are extremely hierarchical. And yeah, so that's a reality. Um, but there, there still are too. So that's something that we need to keep in mind. But anyway, so that's in the backdrop. I think now as we answer this question again as well. Yeah, I, I, at this point, I would say if you are a pastor or a layperson, I would actually encourage you to stay in your church, provided you are not, uh, for lack of a word, being victimized or anything like that. Uh, I think when we give ground uh, easily to more aggressive strands of complementarianism, 
that are not willing to live and let live with, you know, people that disagree with them, then it basically boils down to, well, I'm just not going to be moved. Sorry. Like, and it's one of those where I would just, I wouldn't stay and cause, uh, be respectful to those who are in authority, I would say. And it doesn't mean you don't speak truth to power, but it does mean that you show them the same human dignity, um, that, you know, perhaps that they're, you know, not necessarily extending to others. Um, I actually think there is a case for leaving, um, depending on the situation. Um, I will say this though, I think too often time, too often we treat churches and community and Christian communities like we do, um, just like as consumers teams, yeah. yeah, or baseball teams. Like I don't like it. I'm leaving. Um, this teaching, I, I could use something a little more intellectual or I could use something. I don't like the music. I think it's kind of wishy-washy. I'm going to leave, you know, and I, I really am opposed to that thinking. Um, our, our situation is a little different from years ago because we have so many churches around us. Um, I just don't think once you're really, con- I think you should get connected into a community. And once you are connected into a community, I don't think we should be up and leaving for petty reasons or sometimes they're important reasons. And honestly, there's something to be said about staying and trying to change things. Um, because people say people don't change. That's not true. Mm-hmm. Um, and honestly, that condemns the people that don't change because people change all the time and people don't change all the time. Right. So, you know, the ones that decide that they're going to, for instance, I don't know, keep, I don't know, persecuting others, like, honestly, like, they could have stopped doing that, but they didn't. Um, but anyway, I would say if you are being abused in your church, um, or if you are seeing that abuse is happening rampantly in your church, and there's lots of cover-ups, or people, a lot of secrecy, or um, a lot of downplaying, so, for instance, if, I would say get out of there, because that's a lot more than just a church that has complementarian beliefs, but, you know, isn't necessarily in line with everything you believe, but you're already connected to the community and able to do good work, I would say, yeah, leave. If it's, if it's toxic, like, and abusive like that, leave if you can. Um, I think there is something to be said about staying and sticking it out to and fighting. Um, I think both of those are legitimate options, but I think it's up to the person on that. I don't think there's any clear right or wrong I think you know just be the person um, that God wants you to be and the choice will I think you'll be able to make a good decision on whether to stay and fight or when whether it's time to leave um, so that's I think a bit of a mixed answer um, what are some other nuances that you can think of Nick um, I mean my first thought is to include your spouse and perhaps your kids in this yeah yeah, uh, yeah. don't just make the decision unilateral unilaterally i think being having them involved in the decision process uh they might notice stuff or the kids might be like you know what no i I really want to stay here and you might just stay for the kids for example you know but there's something to be said about weighing options and even talking to like-minded people within the congregation you know you never know do we all want to stay together and be be respectful uh you know dialogue partners yeah. with you know the church you know and if a church decides to go one way or another on that uh without explicit consent from the congregation that to me is a sign of you might just want to get out of there when when 
leadership without input from the congregation unilaterally decides to do something, I get very, um, well, I'm a Baptist, so I don't like that. Uh, I like church conversations. I like, you know, we vote, we decide, and if we don't get a clear majority, then we just stick it out for a while, you know? And so I think that, depending on your ecclesiological context, that might be a factor as well. Like, do you actually have a voice when it comes to a vote, or do the leaders just get, you know, to decide things for or against the congregation? And there's something else to think about, too. Like, the question of thriving. Not just are you surviving, but are you thriving? And this can get, this can get, the experience can be very different. So maybe you and your um, wife are going to a complementarian church. Uh, your wife's exper- experience might be entirely different than yours. Um, you may be having a grand old time, but maybe her gifts are being systematically stifled um, or she's not able to use them. Or, I mean, maybe she does have different gifts and they have nothing to do with leadership, but the culture is still um, toxic towards her personhood. Um, or it's pretty, things as they are are pretty functional and you know maybe she doesn't want you know desire leadership anyway and there seems to be even though you guys have different convictions regarding egalitarianism um maybe you can kind of stick it out a bit it it just depends like again i don't think we're we're just not part of that camp that's just sharply like we disagree we find this um because here's the thing it is a question of ethics and christian um it's a question of theology, ethics, and um, serving Christ. It is. Um, so there's no there's no way around that, I think. But at the same time, um, I think we live in a, a world of gray. And I don't think the best solution is always just to leave. Um, sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. So um, I think there's lots of factors. But again, like it's, it's a game changer once abuse comes into the picture. And... Um, look up, again, go to the Men Project, look up double abuse, um, look up um, some of the covert behaviors that are very damaging to individuals. Uh, We read on this podcast at one time a couple people's experiences of abuse, this kind of covert abuse in the church, um, to the extent where they had to leave their town. Like, this stuff is pretty bad. Like, again, like Annette Altman got sent to the rush to the emergency room many times because her health tanks so bad. Um, this is very t- typical. And again, take this stuff seriously. Um, don't sacrifice your health, your health if you can help it. Um, but again, there's, there's people that do stick around and change things and do sacrifice their health. And that's not wrong per se, but it does come at a high, very high cost. All right, so we are at Starbucks at the airport. George Bush International. Thank you, Mr. President. <laughs> and we're going to try to record something here. We'll see, because there's music and noise, but... Um, <laughs> so, I wanted to say something based off of what we were talking about with, you know, should you stay in your complementarian church? And we thought the question light of a lot of the Me Too and other concerns, um, but let's just say that's all in the backdrop. We're not... I want to be very clear, do not stay in a marriage, a relationship, or a church where you are being physically abused. Do not stay in one where you are exclusively being abused other ways. Um, 
You're not going to save the person by getting hit, molested, or exploited. Basically, what this person needs, what they need in order to get better, your abusive individual is not just being, you being nice to them. What they need is outside accountability, and they need to be able to take ownership and responsibility for what they do. And I mean not just in words, in consistent actions. Um, abuse is not just a one-time thing, it's patterned behavior that's exploitive and one-sided. Like, you cannot help these individuals by downplaying it or um, by just enduring. Yeah. I mean, we all know the story about what Paige Patterson said. Send her back, sent a battered housewife back, and somehow he became a Christian after that, but defeats the whole purpose of, the, you know, of Christian ethics and all that sort of stuff. So, this runs deep. Yeah. And so here's, let me just kind of explain a little bit of what I'm talking about, of when you should stay within a a complementarian church um, or I guess I guess let me be a little bit more clear on that we're not equating complementarian churches with abuse um, we're we were covering though when the two are um, molded melded with abusive behavior and it could be another church where that you have one person on top with consolidated power um, you could have an organization where the leadership the funk the the act the said leaders are actually very weak and so the inmates run the show. Um, again, there's different kinds of abusive situations attached to different pervasive worldviews that are exploitive. Um, here's the guiding principle on whether or not you should stay in your church community um, or whatever that is. So whether it's a parachurch organization, a church, a Bible study, or whatever. Um, the operating principle here. Um, especially when it comes to group, individual or group of abuse, is accountability. Um, are you staying in this abusive group? Let's just say you're not getting abused. Let's say someone else is. It's just a very dysfunctional environment. Are you staying in that abusive group? Um, are, are you able to hold them accountable or effectively push back? Leave if you can. Don't, again, don't suffer these people. Like, seriously. Um, there's, a there's a difference between being complacent um, or complicit versus being a good friend or a force for good somewhere. Um, a lot of people stay or permit really evil, abusive behaviors because they're really complicit or complacent. Um, and here, here's what I mean by being complicit. It's um, generally what happens is in these abusive environments, the abuser is protected or their own, they protect their own. So they kind of see themselves as a family structure. Um, that really enables, you know, these individuals to get protected when they shouldn't. Um, oftentimes, like, especially predators will make you feel like siding with them or joining them is empathizing with them. So it'll feel like empathy for you to also act predatory against another individual. Um, if you're engaging in these, you're in complicit behavior. If you're being silent, um, taking a stance of neutrality or... You know, I'm going to put in parentheses objectivity. Um, the only one that you're helping in, a, in this situation, when you just say it's he said, she said, the only one you're helping by being silent is the abuser. Being silent allows them to keep exploiting the other individual. The other thing is um, I would say there's a lot of issues with selective naivete where people in these environments tend to um, say that the abusive behavior isn't so bad or they'll treat the abusive individual or behavior as just childish. 
Um, the thing is, like, abusive individuals are very, um, uh, let's just say they're not necessarily the most mature individuals, obviously, because they have a weak sense of self at, at the core, because um, they have to exploit others. But what they're doing is not childish. Like, seriously, treat them like adults. If they're doing damage to someone, and again, trauma doesn't just happen to people. Like, being a sensitive person does not mean you're going to get traumatized somewhere. If you're, if the person's actually experiencing, um, especially like documented trauma, like, yeah, like you've got a problem here. So anyway, um, accountability. So if you can stay and hold them accountable, do it. You know, sometimes it's worth, um, sacrificing for, you know, so because oftentimes they'll come after you. But, um, if, if you're just staying because you kind of like the, the songs and you're not really holding anyone accountable or pushing back in any meaningful way, like, get out of there, seriously. <laughs> like, don't let these, like, institutions thrive. Um, and again, sometimes, like, you may be actually trapped there, and that's a whole other story. But we're talking about people that actually have some ability and agency. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, like the apostle says, like, again, if you're being abused, I think it's akin to... Um, if you're able to get your freedom as a slave, do it. Like, abuse is a type of slavery. Yeah. Get out if you can. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah you're, you're not bound, as Paul says, to that. Yeah, and I think so often our messed up theology um, places the example of Christ um, on the cross or, you know, facing persecution on victims, um, which is not the situation. Um, number one, Jesus pushed back. Um, he just spoke truth to power. Um, he told Pilate, you know, a corrupt politician, that he really didn't have any power. You know, fascinating. Um, but, you know, the call of, the, of Christ and the call of the Christian is for those of us who um, are able to stand with the person that's marginalized and oppressed to become them um, for the sake of the kingdom. That's the call. So if you are, again, not the person being targeted, um, the call of sacrifice, as Christ's sacrifice, is not for you to project or to transfer onto the victim, but for you to take upon yourself and your ability to stand against evil. So, anyway. Alright, so this... Where are we now? Question. Oh, we landed safely in LAX. In wonderful smog. You can't even see downtown from LAX, LA. And Ugh, <laughs> I hate this state already. We are looking forward to seeing our ginger kitty. Can we go back to Texas already? Oh, no, there's a ginger kitty. No, no, can we pick up the ginger cat then go to Texas? Mm, I don't think he likes being moved, but It'd be a heck of sure. A, <laughs> Nick. It'd be a heck of a drive with him. Yeah, that's for sure. I'm definitely not putting him on a plane. Um, our, my sister-in-law, Noelle, sent me this picture of a traumatized <laughs> ginger kitty. Think, like, huge eyes, like, gaping mouth, and... Very expressive, almost like a cartoon. Yeah, um, because she came out... She's watching him, and she came out of the shower, and she had a... Or she came out of the shower with a mask on, a face mask, and he was like... Oh no! And he got traumatized by it. It, was, it looks really funny, actually. He so, looks absolutely terrified. It's kind of funny. So okay, we have a new question. Um, my okay, I'll I'll read it, and there's a couple of questions in here, but I'll read the whole thing. Um, my wife and I just got married, and we we're both egalitarian. 
and I listened to your biblical defenses of that position, but we would love to hear some tips on how to communicate lovingly with complementarians. Have you guys have you guys been looked down upon by other members of the church or have had struggles with friends or anyone because of it? I'm planning on attending Westminster Cali next year and I feel like we will definitely be in the minority. Thanks. All right, so let's go for that first part. Um, what are some ways to communicate lovingly with complementarians? My first thought is basically the golden rule. Uh, yeah. It's one of those, treat others how you want to be treated, even if they don't treat you that way. And especially, um, how do you want to be treated if you happen to be horribly wrong in a way that's significant? How do you want to be treated? You would hope that, you know, people would want to hear you out, that they talk with you about things that matter. But let's say you're going to Westminster Cali and Michael Horton jumps up and says, the egalitarians are all going to hell. And if any of your egalitarians get out of my classroom, which I don't Not likely. Unlikely. I think your response, I mean, if that were to literally happen, I'd be shocked. But let's say it did. My first response is I wouldn't say anything. Then I walk up to him after class and be like, you know, doctor, there are a lot of people that are that disagree with you, uh, that study the scriptures and came to different conclusions, some within the Reformed tradition, like Roger Nicole and others, who, uh, all these, you know, and, and give them kind of reasons and stuff like that, you know, and say, I, I you know, I, I felt slighted by that. I don't, doesn't mean you have to agree with me, but I would hope that there would be fair representation of a secondary issue within Christian theology. That'd be a way to kind of communicate in an extreme situation. Uh, more situations that are likely, people will just look at you and go, well, what about X verse? What about this proof text? And my response usually is, you know, that's a really good question. Um, let's start, and I did this with a guy. I'm like, all right, let's start, let's look at it. And I opened up 1 Timothy, yep. and I read, starting in chapter 1, verse 1, and I started reading. And I just read through the text with him. We made points of, okay, so why is this written? Why is this? Why is that? Blah, blah, blah. And by the time we got to uh, the quote section on women... Uh, he he kind of was had this look of like, huh, you know, and and so I think just basically treating scripture with respect and showing that hey, I'm I'm not just going off a gut feeling or what have you. I take this as seriously as I take, you know, as I take any other text of scripture. So those those are some ways maybe that you can communicate lovingly. Yeah, I mean, I think overall, like I think so much. <laughs> so I, I would say so much of maybe old school evangelical mindset is to challenge everything, you know, hence you would, you know, hear of those students that would have to make a stand in the classroom when evolution was taught. And it's like, okay, whether you're right or wrong, like, was that really respectful or right to do? And I think the answer is oftentimes no. So I don't think that we need to always be challenging um, people all the time, left and right. Um, not that you're implying that at all, actually, but um, I would say overall, it's switching the mentality and disposition to be more in term that more dialogue oriented. Um, so, for instance, I I tend I tend to not necessarily interject things unless I find it necessary, and there it always um, takes discernment to figure out when that is. Um, it's oftentimes, I think, more necessary to interject, especially if you find someone um, in the classroom or at your church is being targeted uh, subtly or undermined subtly. So, um, and I mean, you just it just depends on the church culture and um, where you're where they're at, really. Um, I think a good way is to ask questions. 
too. Because that's respect for... Um, and not in the way that just assumes you know everything, too. Um, I think that's a good way to respect the person who has um, given a certain perspective, maybe in a Bible study. Um, and also assuming that, you know, maybe they'll have an answer to it. Because the thing is, like, we we all have our arguments. And here's the thing. A lot of complementarians um, think that they know the scriptures better than us and that they can answer whatever objection we throw their way. So the question, what I would like to see from someone who thinks that they know better is that I would be asked in a respectful way what I do with X um, in, a, in a way that assumes that perhaps I'll have an answer. And I would say apply that um, to your complementarian friends as well. Um, and I, I find more than not, more often or not, if you're in the minority, um, people are going to challenge you rather than you being in a position to challenge other people. Um, so I would just constantly be respectful towards them. Like, like Nick said, oh, yeah, that's a good question. And watch your, watch your tone quite a bit. Um, I mean, don't hold it against yourself if someone's extremely um, condescending towards you and you get a little irritated or... I mean, that's, that's normal, but sometimes like just what you want to avoid is any attempt to try to put, I think the other person in their place, um, just for the sake of doing so, if that makes sense. Um, okay. So the other part was, have you guys been looked down upon by other members of the church or have you had struggle with friends or anyone because of it? Yes. Well, um, two different experiences between Nick and I. Um, my church context, my church context, has actually tended to be extremely, well, for the most part, functional, um, and also, um, I mean, just so happens to be mostly egalitarian. Though I've spent extended periods of time in complementarian churches as well. What seminary did you spend a semester at? Oh, <laughs> well, we'll get. I'll get to that in a bit. Um, so, but yeah, so I say most of my experience, um, on being looked down upon, um, I would say insulted quite a bit has been in parachurch organizations. So that would be, um, the university seminary, um, I would say a work context, um, at times, um, where, um, I have, um, <laughs> Uh, it's it, some of it can be like nonverbal. So I would, which Nick was hinting at, I went to, um, and usually I don't like to say places, but since you mentioned Westminster, California, I went to Westminster, Philadelphia, and I was just not prepared for. I wasn't a very overt egalitarian. I just kind of became convinced of it at my, the end of my time at Biola. It wasn't something I held to strongly per se, but all of a sudden, just being a female there was just threatening to so many people. They would ask me what my major was and then hold their breath. And it became really weird because that had never happened to me before. And it was, I think at first it's just like odd, but you don't really think much of it. But after like the seventh, eighth, ninth, 10th, 11th, 12th, 13th, 14th time, it starts to get a little, um, pervasive. And especially, um, I've had people, um, tell, I would say, sexist jokes or um, say different things because they think I need to be put in my place um, for various reasons. Um, whether And it's usually uh, wanting me to feel inferior, so reminding me that my 
husband or potential future husband is over me. Um, and just out of the blue, um, and saying, oh yeah, well, I would ask you this, but you know, men are blah, 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 blah. Um, I've had people, um, declare their superiority over me. Um, honestly, I've heard it all at this point. Um, so what I try to do with these people, um, and again, my experience might be different from what you as a male will face. Um, although I think it, none of us are, have, have, you know, I think all of us have at one point faced dehumanizing comments. Um, it's just that certain people in minority positions, which you will be a theological minority, um, tend to face them a lot more. And oftentimes it can get um, very toxic. So what I try to do and the principle I try to live with in whatever context I'm in is to basically not meet dehumanization and a mentality that seeks to take someone and break them down or tear them down. I don't try to meet them with, I I guess I don't see that I, I have a strong sense of self in Christ. And so I don't feel the need to do the same. Um, I feel like instead, I, I mean, what I try to do is try to be constructive. So, um, I don't, um, try to hit them back. Um, I try to stay very factual. Um, so I would say this one, one of the things, um, you just have to stick to the facts. Um, be very plain, hold them to accountable for what they say in terms of the content. Um, don't get distracted by their insults. And I'd say if you can, if you can build them up in any way, like do it, don't flatter them. But again, like I think, um, love is the love of Christ is, um, creative and constructive. And I think, um, what the thing that is anti-Christ is destructive. And so I try to approach with, that principle amount, you know, in mind. And even when I try to give my perspective, um, I'm trying to build at the core, build another up and introduce something into their life that I think can be beneficial. And I try to do that with, even, even though they're, they want to put me down in my place. I, I think in terms of, um, you know, what it, what is place? Like, you know, it just, my place is in Christ. So, you know, what do I have to lose? And then I can just kind of, um, stand my ground, find boldness to stand my ground, be overt, but also, um, not be threatened. So I would say, um, instead of giving you all the little bits of, um, tactics on how to, you know, approach the subject interpersonally, I would say, um, start with, if, if you feel, um, if you pay attention to what's going on inside and um, if you start to feel like you need to um, assert yourself, assert yourself, yes, because um, you should not be put down and that's true. But at the same time, if you feel like it needs that you need to do the same to the other person, I would um, just point it out to yourself mentally and make a conscious choice um, to refrain from that and instead stick to the facts. Um, Nick had a different experience in his church context, um, and especially surrounding our wedding when it all kind of came out, but I'll let Nick talk to whether he's been put down by other members of the church or had struggles with friends because of his egalitarianism. Um, yeah, uh, I had a few friends that, uh, one refused to be in my wedding because there'd be a female minister or pastor, um doing the service 
to his credit, now I don't think he would actually have gone that route. And I had a very close friend who was a complementarian who was there because he supported me, and I would do the same thing with him. Yeah. So it again goes back to that, you know, golden rule: do unto others, even if they don't do it unto you. Yeah. Um, but yeah, growing up, um, all that sort of stuff didn't have a lot of. Maybe a good way of saying it is when I became an egalitarian while at Viola, um, I had debates upon debates with people that I considered friends who probably at this point I'm not sure would consider me a friend. And it was rather difficult because, uh, as Allison alluded to, there are insults. And I'm, half the time I'm not certain people are intending to insult you. It's just that they haven't encountered it and they're so steadfast in a view they haven't studied and they feel threatened, and so they slash out. Yeah. I was known as the guy with the girlfriend. Yeah, and basically. I'm like, they don't even know me. What do you mean, that girlfriend? Yeah. <laughs> what did I do? Well, I mean, I was introduced <laughs> to someone, and he shook my hand, and I said, I'm Nick. And he went, oh, yeah, you're the guy with the girlfriend. And I'd never, I'd met the, I knew who this guy was, but we never formally, you know, shook hands. Hi, how are you? I'm Nick. You're so-and-so. And it's one of those where uh, you just kind of realize that word travels fast in small theological circles. And, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, you know, the guy made a big point of talk. It was back when Mark Driscoll was a thing, you know, and made a point of talking about how he agreed with Mark Driscoll about everything. And, I mean, for example, one that was clearly trying to bait me into a conversation. And I just kind of, oh, that's nice. I just disagree with Mark. Yeah, and so, like, I mean, you notice um, also in that response, Nick's not defensive. Um so, I mean, Nick's already been overt by his egalitarianism, and that's how he got known to be the guy with the girlfriend. It's because they blamed it all on me, that Nick can't think for himself or something. Yeah, um, that's how that works. Yeah, that's how that works. Um, but, you know, what he his response to the guy wasn't defensive. Um, defensiveness is to launch into all the proofs and, like, um, call them out on their lack of um, exegetical skills, perhaps. But I think a good way to be is to... Um, instead, just, you know, have, have a calm yet assertive response. And if they want to keep poking the bear, um, you can address them on a factual, intellectual level. And some people you got to walk away from eventually, um, especially if they just won't um, have constructive dialogue with you. Um, I had someone that wanted to bring back slavery. You know, it'll teach people some humility. I, I kid you not. And yeah, can we start with him? Yeah, like... yeah. I mean, I had to. I had to eventually walk away from that because I mean, a, after a while, it wasn't. I, I frankly, I talked to him and I dialogued with this guy. I don't care if your views are extreme. I'll talk to you. I don't care. I'm not someone that's just going to um, block someone or x them out because they're extreme. Like I, that's just not me. But you know, once they refuse um, to look at evidence to the contrary and want to just get into an assert, asserting war with you, um, you got to do otherwise. Um, well, and you also have, it a li- have a limited amount of time. Yeah. And you'll be in seminary, you're married, so those two things take priority over spats on the internet, internet with people that probably don't know much. And so I think investing in time and respecting your own time is something valuable because when I first started fighting with people on the internet or in person, I basically realized, one, it doesn't usually work because at this point, very few people are willing to be convinced of anything. Uh, and two... Uh, and by the way, we've had lots of people actually change their mind and be convinced. 
I, I tend to be a little more cynical, but... But at the end of the day, we've actually had a lot of people change their mind. Like, yeah. it's actually quite cool. Well, yeah, based, I would hope, on evidence and stuff like that. But yeah. I, but anyway, I'd make, you know, point to someone, and he'd basically run to his theological mentor or his favorite book and basically copy-paste. Yeah, and it was copy-paste. Well, it was one of those where I basically told him, it's like, look, I'll, I'll argue with your mentor, but I'm not going to argue with a mediator when you know, when you don't know anything. Yeah. And that's, and for me, it's, it's never try to be rude, but you know, you can call people out. So for example, he was doing the whole like, well, I want to watch, you know, the, I want to debate. Uh, I want to, yeah, I mean, basically copy and pasting what his mentor was saying. I basically said, I'm, if we're, you and I aren't here to have a conversation and you're here to basically quote your mentor uncritically, then we can't have a conversation because this is just not how, this is not how dialogue works. You can't verify anything he's saying to you, nor can you, or do you seem to be capable of verifying what I'm saying to you? Well, and the, it's, it gets, tr okay, so what you have to do is discern whether you're getting someone that's basically just treating you like a cult mem member. They know that they are right and that you are a loon bag and they don't have to know anything whatsoever, but they're going to just quote random things at you um, so that you can learn your lesson. You know, and that's very different from someone who just has um, very strong convictions and is very convinced of their position and steadfast in it. Um, and it, what it comes down to is that dialogue, you know, and it, it, the thing is, it doesn't mean that the other person has to necessarily understand everything that they're saying either to ask a question. I mean, maybe they'll say, well, so-and-so says this. What do you say to that? And you're like, well, blah, blah, blah. You know, but again, you can kind of have that back and forth. It's not just like, let me just throw a bunch of resources at you and try to appeal to these random authorities. I think when someone does that, you just have to be very polite to them and bring it back to, again, like dialogue. Say, okay, well, I see that you're quoting so-and-so. What in particular about so-and-so's claim um, do you find persuasive that you would like me to address? You know, and again, if you get a bunch of mantras and weird things and yeah, just say, all right, well, it sounds like you don't have anything specific in mind at the moment, which is fine. Um, you know, all the best, you know. <laughs> so I would just, you know, not end things on a, I would call them out, but not end things on a, a bad you know, condemnation note, because it could be that they're just not ready for that conversation at time, at the time. And all of us are in process. Um, I would, I'll say this too. I've had, sometimes people are in a mixed bag. Um, I have, you know, I have a very close friend, um, that I touched on something very sensitive, um, for her. Um, I, I, you know, I, I had not, her and I had been friends for a very long time and I didn't, um, I didn't know she would re react this strongly. Um, I, in hindsight, maybe I should have known, but all this to say, like her and I are good friends for a reason. And it's not like she acts this way all the time, but today she decided she was just kind of, um, extremely just asserting, um, I would say a bit, um, condescending towards me too, and feeling, um, <laughs> basically not appealing to any evidence. It was just something that she in the end felt very strongly about and was angry that I disagreed with her. I wasn't allowed to dis I was not allowed to disagree. 
And again, you know, is that someone being in a very stubborn position without really wanting to dialogue? Yes. But this is also a friend of mine that I can have, you know, these conversations with. Um, just not right now. So, you know, what I tried to do was to try to um, pause the conversation um, and say, hey, you know, we'll we'll pick this up. We'll be, we'll pick this up later. How about that? You know, and no, you know, and you know, again, it's the, <laughs> you know, it's it's uh, reasons going out the window at this point. So, you know, what I tried to do was um, just, you know, ask, start reverting to ask question mode, uh, but not questioning. So, like, oh, okay, so you think, you know, repeating their position to them, you think blah blah blah. Okay. Um, well, um, what, what, you know, why do you think I should hold to blah, 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 you know, well, it just is blah, 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 you know, and again, I've already tried to switch the conversation. So just like, okay, I understand, I understand, you know, we, we disagree, you know, that's all right. <laughs> so sometimes I think it's just, um, being charitable in the moment, just as we can all get kind of belligerent sometimes, um, me included. So, and just hope that someone shows the same grace to us. Nick nods his head, yes. identity. Um, so it's created to thrive mutuality, power, and identity. And that was the conference title for CBE this time. Um, so, you know, just in terms of strategy first, um, we responded to current events, you know, we try to be mindful and try to meet the egalitarian message, um, with it. So, Obviously, again, like abuse has been in the picture, um, but CBE's message and the message of egalitarianism is a positive one about mutuality. So it's not a, primarily a message about discrimination. It's not primarily a message about abuse, but it's about mutual inclusion, mutual value, and mutual submission um, in the Lord. So. Um, what I tried to do was um, try to capture that positive message and try to say, basically, um, try to, from the, the heart of what who we are, you know, what what do we want to say? Not just what do we want to negate, but what do we want to say? Because we had a lot of, um, we had a ton more, we had a ton of uh, workshops and um, plenary on, that covered at least abuse in various forms. Um, both on a systemic and an individual level. And we we don't want to only exist there. We want to boldly cover it and call it out and um, not try to 
pretend it doesn't exist or you know try to swap it out for a positive message but at the same time we wanted to have like a, a goal or something to, to move towards so something to fix our eyes on um, and say this is why we're here and not just um, exist um, forever you know in responding so um, you so created to thrive um, basically gets at our calling as human beings made in the image of God, that we're all called to use our gifts, our abilities, and our positions um, to further uh, the kingdom and to live um, whole and fulfilled lives in the Lord. Um, and then mutuality, obviously, uh, mutual submission, uh, mutual leadership, mutual opportunity, all those things, mutual value, um, power. Um, a lot of what we covered was, you know, some, we, we talked about some negative understandings of power, but a lot also on our identity in Christ and where true power comes from and identity. Um, who are we? Um, and so where we get our power will flow from where our identity is. And it's, if it's in Christ, then um, we can basically face any obstacle that comes our way because um, we're able to essentially self-empty and give it up to the Lord. Um, so that's what I had in mind. Um, when I came up with this and I hope